The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Today's reading is coming from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. And uh, if you're reading on the Bibles, uh, in the Bibles under your seats, it's on page 1015 starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This has been the reading of God's word. Morning. Let me uh, open a prayer for us. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for those uh, that have made America um, free. And for those who have um, given and sacrificed to maintain that freedom. Um, so I acknowledge, Father, that uh, the liberty we have um, comes from a government or established and ordained by you, but built upon the sacrifice of men who are obedient uh, to a call to serve their country and uh, who have given everything. So we, we, Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, just thank you and acknowledge those um, that have made great sacrifice. Father, it's not without um, coincidence that we acknowledge you as the ultimate one who made the greatest sacrifice. And I pray that you'll be honored, glorified, and lifted up this morning. I pray for those here that are just struggling, that have come here with weights on themselves. I pray that they would just know they're not alone, that they are family, and that they are part of a family that loves them. In Christ's name, amen. Start my stopwatch, get the clock rolling. Try to be good with time, that's, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, I know people get bored of me much quicker than I do myself. So having said that, uh, I wanna give you a little, little where we're going this morning. Um, caption for this morning's passage is love displayed. Um, real simple breakdown, not when you got this number of verses, this, this passage to cover, there's not a lot. There's a lot here, but there's not a lot of verses that we're gonna cover. So the first, uh, just two simple sections, how we act. How we act is 1 Peter verse 3, 8. And then why we act is uh, 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12. So how we act and then why we act. And I hope you'll walk away this morning for us to see that as believers in Christ that we're called to love God and one another through our actions, that these are things we display. Um, so with that, uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, I always look for themes, uh, something to weave through this. And I was thinking about, um, and I don't think for Randy it's ever too soon to start speaking about football. So I, I kind of wound up there thinking about Clemson in particular. And so I was, a I was asking myself this question about how all great teams work and what really makes them become one. Because you think about the body of Christ, us as a church, we, we are a group of individuals. And, and what adds greatness to who we are and what, what makes it work. And I think there's a lot to be said when you look at those outside of the church 
that excel in excellence, that rise above the rest. You say, what's up with them? How, how did they do this? So in honor of Randy, who's away with Sophia this weekend, I will digress into college football just for a moment. So it's interesting, Clemson was rated never number one the whole season until they won the final game. I, I find that just irony in and of itself. Um, they won a couple games by the hair, you know, less than a, than a field, uh, excuse me, less than a touchdown. And so I was thinking about it, thinking about um, what, what really made them great. And so I was watching them, um, and when I go to the gym right now, they play ESPN, and there's women's college softball. Have you ever seen a woman throw a softball at like 70 miles an hour? And they're not doing the overhand thing. They sit back and they wind this thing up and let it rip underneath. And it's like, that's, I mean, I was just kind of really blown away the first time I saw a ball flying down. But what really, really caught me, I was watching this girl hit a home run. And as she comes running up to home plate, the whole team was there meeting her at the home plate. And I thought, there's something here. They're, because it's, it's not that they're told to do that. It's a reflection of their heart is that in victory, we all celebrate. We all have that joy. We all have that sense of accomplishment. It's, it, one serving in a particular ca capacity, the victory isn't theirs. The victory is the team's. So as I started thinking more about this, what's the one factor that makes a good team a great team? Or that makes a great team a champion team? And so the questions, is, is it the quarterback? You know, is there a star player? Is there a great offensive line, a great defensive line? Is it the heart of the players that when you look at them, they, they just won't give up? Maybe it's a team that's bent on, on refusing to lose. So I would just ask that question because for us, again, there are parallels here for us as the church. What will make Doxa a great church? And I want this to be a great church, by the way. If it's not a great church, find another church that is a great church. That's how you should feel about the church you go to. Um, and I think that's backed by God calling you, saying, this is your church. Go there. I mean, I, I think that's important stuff there. But what makes a good team a great team, or what makes a good church a great church? So just with that in opening, we are in, we're studying, if you're new to Doxa, we're studying, marching through the book of 1 Peter. We've been addressing some early Christians who were referred to as aliens or foreigners. And we know that's really true with us as well, that, that the earth is not our true final destination. And we've covered the fact that we, as well as they in the early church, were chosen people and set apart as Christ's own. That as foreigners, this obviously isn't our home. And that we're to live according to a different set of standards. You know, it's funny, when I was typing my notes, I wrote love instead of live. And I went back and thought, that's probably more accurate. That we don't live according to a different set of standards. We love according to a different set of standards. That what fuels us and our love for one another isn't how well you love me or what you do for me. It's not a reciprocal love. And you see, the world, if you want to live in the world, you're going to see a reciprocal love. And if you don't love them, they ain't going to love you. That's real clear. So with that, how, th this new church was, was called not only to live, but to love according to a different code. And so not only is there a loving and a living in a different code, but there's a foregoing or a releasing or a letting go of the old things that drove us, how we gratify and satisfy our flesh, what our priorities are in life. 
And so when they talked about this new moral code about foregoing the old sinful ways that we had in ignorance and, and now living according to the new knowledge and the love of God that indwells us through his Holy Spirit. So it talked about these behaviors primarily in three areas, slaves and really submission to authority, then wives and how the wives would submit, displaying how they love God through the submission in the home. And that word, I hope after last couple weeks, submission doesn't leave a bad taste in your mouth. And again, I, I mentioned last week on how we talk about submission is that when you're in the military, you're, you're not submitting to your general and gritting your teeth. It's a rank and file, and we adhere to the authority as the protocol for how we function within this structure. You know, go to, go to Arlington National Cemetery, and I mentioned this last week, and it's worth restating it again, but the size of the cross that marks your death isn't based upon the rank you served at the time of your death. They're all the same sized cross which says the inherent value of us within the body of Christ and within the home are all equal before Christ. Yet we have distinct roles and responsibilities in those God-ordained roles and responsibilities. So for wives, uh, the, to display who Christ is comes under submission of the husband's authority. Now I hope, wives, that you, if you were here last week, I hope you took great notes because I gave you permission to go home and sit your husband down and review the notes with him to make sure he didn't miss anything about how to be a biblical husband. So I, I hope you did that. I, I mean, if you didn't, you just, you missed your chance. That's what I'll say about that. So, so with that, we, we close out with last week talking about how husbands not only live with their wives, but love their wives as Christ loved the church. And really the bottom line for us as husbands is our goal is to outserve everybody under that, that roof in the home in which we live to display how Christ submitted to the Father as he loved the church. And that's it. That's very, in a very simple nutshell where we're going. So we pick up this week in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and it says, Finally, all of you, now that talks about slaves, that talks about those subject to authority, it talks about husbands and about wives, everybody under the discussion we've been talking about since chapter 2, verse 11, and that's where we were talking about these new behaviors, this new lifestyle. So finally, and again, obviously you see the word finally, it, it's drawing a summation or a conclusion. So it says, finally, all of you having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, there's a lot there. So talking about these standards by which we're going to live. And I'm going to break these down because we've got literally four verses to teach this, this, this morning. But I'm going to spend the bulk of the time talking about what, is it, what, is, what does unity of mind mean? What is sympathy? What is brotherly love? What is a tender heart? And what is a humble mind? And I'll say this. Oftentimes we see words in our modern day English that have no correlation with the old Hebrew or actually the Greek in which they wrote most of this. So, so with that, um, we're going to give a little bit of summary here for this on these words. And, and I'm going to go back to the Greek actually because I think that tells a picture that, that adds fullness to this passage. So we know 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us we're ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives to the people on earth and that we represent Christ and his agenda. So the question is, what does that look like? And, and 1 Peter 3.8 is telling us what that looks like. It gives us these attributes that we're to exhibit, not only in our homes in, in, in a summary fashion for the people he went over, but as well for our workplaces and our communities and those areas we serve with the hope that it's going to make a huge statement about who we are as Christians, that it's going to say these people are distinct and separate and apart from all others because of who their God was. 
Um, these words are not common to the New Testament. So it tells you again, if you see a common word, you think, oh, well, it, they're talking about this all the time, but they weren't. They're really select words used in a limited manner. So the first one, unity of mind. Um, some of the passages say you be of one mind. The Greek for this is, um, I want to pronounce this right, homaron is the Greek word, meaning being of one purpose and action. Now this is interesting because when you think harmonious, you think of in belief and in feeling and in thought, but it's not, it's, that's not where we're going. Because our opinions and our beliefs will vary individual to individual. And we're not worried. The driving focus here is that you're a showpiece for the person of Christ. And I don't want to say what we think or what we feel or what we believe is not relevant. That's, that's not true, especially what we believe. But my opinions will take a second seat to how we act. All right? To the purpose under which we live our lives. See, I may, I, I may have differing views on that. Well, what Peter's saying is we've all got to be on the same board when it comes to our actions. Because if we're not, think about the baseball team. Think about the football team. If they're not unified, they may have different opinions about how important the quarterback is. Or, or the responsibility of first base. Or whether the first baseman is assuming those responsibilities. But the minute you step out on the team, on the field, we're of one purpose. One action. So again, do you see the disconnect between the two here? When we talk about being of one mind or opinion, it's, it's a backseat to the purpose and action. And so that obviously would make sense for us because we're motivated by the same grace. All of us do the same things because of the same father, because of the same family, because of the same grace. We may feel and think differently about those things, but the underlying motivation for why we act should be common and consistent. The body of Christ obviously is one body, right? Again, because if, if the mind directs the legs and the arms to move in a particular way and the arms say, we, we're, not, we're not in agreement with that, it doesn't tend to function as one body. And obviously, you hear that term, the body of Christ, pretty consistently. So it's also with the understanding the church should have, and, and I think this is a great statement, if we are of oneness, the church should have no enemies or opposing forces from within herself. Think about that now. And that's, that's again, this sense of oneness. If you think about a good team, what's in that team? There's nobody that says, oh, I'm just going to let the ball roll past me this time. I'm really ticked off at the first baseman. Or that pitcher should have thrown a different pitch. No, we're not going to do it that way anymore. You step onto the field, you're in that game for a unified purpose. And that's to prevail and be victorious. And so with that, again, I, and I think I say this because I'm talking about the believing body. Not sitting here because we may have people in our midst who are clearly not saved. You know what the best definition of a Christian is, by the way? One who's experienced the new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the person of Christ. Think about that. It's not somebody who sits in a church pew. It's not somebody who attends Bible study. It's not somebody who serves the community. You may or may not love Jesus doing all of those things. You may be in a church because you like the sense of community. And I think that's a fair statement, and I rejoice if you're here for that reason. I hope we can love you well. Um, but, but there should be no opposition or enemies from within the body itself. And it is through joining together the members of the body of Christ, that the church can exist and exert its full authority. 
See why? Once you put the numbers together, we can accomplish things collectively that we cannot accomplish individually. And that's the big deal with the church. We, we've got more weight to swing around. Second adjective, be sympathetic or having compassion for one another. They're kind of different. Um, the Greek word, sympathes. I think I've got that right. I might not, though. You can click on a little. This is so cool with technology today that you can, like, go on a Greek lexicon and hit the little icon and it, like, says the word. Now, the guy sounds a little stuffy when he says the word, but nonetheless, you can't tremendously butcher it. So th there's the word. I won't repeat it again. The Greek goes beyond the feeling of empathy for someone. And this, again, is interesting because we would look at this and say when we hear sympathetic, it means to be empathetic. But, but in the Greek, it, it means to share in one's suffering. Now think about that. Put it, put it in the context of our church, and in particular, the, the church in Peter's day. You had people that were facing tremendous hostility from the government. If you were a Jew and you accepted Christ, Judaism was, there's nothing that we have in our culture today to reflect what Judaism looked like in Jesus' day. If you were a Jew, your sense of family was, was, was incredibly tight, meaning all of your blood lineage, everybody within your family, um, you'd never think. Uh, your son dishonors you. You know the punishment in the Old Testament for your son dishonoring you? Stone him to death. I mean, th there was a tight wrap on the family, but not only the family, but the community, all of your business ties. Do you hear that, young man? If you're disrounding your dad, thank God you're not in Jesus' day. If, um, you, and that's why the parable of the prodigal was such a blasphemous parable, because this son says, Dad, I wish you were dead. And the father doesn't drag him out and have the elders and him stone him to death. He gives him his inheritance and lets him go. And it's like, how could you let that happen? Um, so, so going back to this, is, th is that the Jews would have lost their, not only their, their immediate family, but they would have lost their sense of community and the communities under which they conducted their business and livelihood, and then they would have been banned from the synagogue. So these would have been people that lost everything. And then you've got a tyrannical government breathing down upon your back and neck, and um, it does not make for a comfortable situation. So the, the question, or the point that, that Peter's making here is that when there are those who are hurting, they will not hurt alone. That in the body of Christ, there is nobody who should be hurting alone anymore under any condition. And so I, I ask this question for us. Pick up where I, I'm here. Oh, let, me, let me do this before I ask my questions. Think about this. So not only with the old Jewish church, what it would look like or for the new, the, the new believers in Peter's day, but think about this just for us. When you sign up for Christianity, you're accepting a world of trials and tribulations that the unsaved world does not experience. Uh, John chapter 15, 18 through 19 tells us this. If the world hates you, and it it's really um, should be the world will, but he does say it anyway. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So if the world is hating you because of Jesus, we get to take it personal, but you're not taking it personally. Jesus is the one who takes it personal. It's like an offense because you're a member of somebody's family, and, and that person is the one who's really hated, not you. You're just stuck as part of their family. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. I always think about that, news, uh, that article when Frank Sinatra died, a news, news reporter was saying, the world loved him. And I, I, just, I can't shake it when I hear those words, when I look over my shoulder, how the world loved Frank, and I think, that's, I, do not, that does not, I don't want that near my tombstone. <laughs> that the world loved me. No, just, just set that aside. 
If you're of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there is going to be trials. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be tribulation purely because the world is hostile to everything we think, say, and do as believers. So if we see a brother or sister in Christ who's in pain or is suffering, irrespective of the cause, there should be one response. It should be our duty to do it with them. And again, I think it goes a step further that if they're suffering because of certain aspects of physical logistics in life, do we have a duty to meet those logistics, those aspects, those finances, those burdens? Yeah, absolutely. And I love Acts 11, the New Testament. Don't think giving God a tithe is a good... For years as a Christian, I thought tithing 10% was right, it was just, it was good, and it was my responsibility. That's heresy. And let me put it in context now. Some of you might really be struggling financially, and you giving 2% is how you can honor God, and that's good, and that's right, and that's true, and that's what your, what your responsibility is. Some of you could give 20%. The New Testament church in Acts 11 says they gave according to ability. That means if you've got more time than somebody else, you need to give more. If you have more money than somebody else and can afford to give more, you get the opportunity to give more. And ultimately, the, the, the return there is you get blessed, by the way. There's the blessing. Um, but I don't, I, the, as time goes on, that 10%, that's an Old Testament guideline. And again, I'm not saying it's patently wrong and bad, but what I am saying is that we use it as an excuse to mitigate how we give in certain times. And that's bad. So is there someone in your life that's struggling right now, that's suffering, a fellow believer, that God's leaving on your heart and convicting you to go and comfort them? And I know when I get those burdens, I'm like, oh, God, here's my excuses. I'm lazy. I don't want to go. I'm tired. I've been working all week or whatever's going on. My flesh revolts at the thought. Sometimes it's a lack of time, but that's, such a, that's not true. That's a lie. We all got 24 hours. It's not a lack of time. It's how you choose to use your time. So when people say, I don't have time, I go, that's a lie. Oh, you got just, just like me, 24 hours. And if you wanted to do that, you'd push it to the front of the line to the neglect of all other things. We all have time. It's just how we choose to use it. Or do we just not want to pull some money out of our pocket? I mean, because you labor and sacrifice. Well, that's my wife and I, we were going to give to somebody a little, little while ago. And I said, is it we'll give sometimes the tithe money. And I said to my wife, is it before or after tithe? I want to know how much the sacrifice is really going to be here. And I'm being honest. That's the truth. You know, I gauge myself. Well, God's, to me, God gets a tenth period. That's just my way of saying thanks. You know, that's, the, that's a pretty good deal, by the way. Like one for me, two for me, three for me, four for me. Five for me, six for me, seven for me, eight for me, nine for me, one for you. One for me, two for me, three for I mean, that's a good deal. If you got to, like, divvy up your cash and break it up for somebody, I think I'm coming out ahead there. So who do you need to come for today? Who's out there? Not even a sermon on tithing, and God forbid we've heard too much already. But, you know, the truth really is it's, it's, it's a Christian living is not about tithing. It's about giving and about giving four things, our time, talent, truth, and the treasure. And that you're going to hear every Sunday if you're teaching from the Word of God. So who do you need to come for today? When I think about people that I have overlooked, have you overlooked people that were struggling and really struggling? Did you, have you ever done that? Nod with me. Come on, make me feel good so I'm not alone. If I'm suffering now, you have to be with me in my suffering, right? It's according to Peter. So with that, do you know why I overlooked those people? Oh, I had my toes stumped on this one. I tell them they brought it on themselves. 
made their own bed. Let them sleep in it. Do you want to talk about, that's a horrible thing. If Christ came to me and said, Jonathan, you made your own bed, sleep in it. Where would I be? Where would we all be? The nature of grace is that we overlook the mess you made. That we're all like sheep without a shepherd. We're all having bonehead days. We've all dropped the ball. We're all selfish, fickle, stiff-necked, easily swayed and petty. Oh, and what's the likelihood then for the, the, that we're going to drop the ball somewhere? And everybody could look at me and say, if I've dropped the ball in my life and made a mess, you can blame it on me every time. Nobody else to blame. And so think about that this morning for those that are struggling. Does it matter why they're struggling? You know, it matters. It's not why they're struggling. It's where they're struggling. And I say the where because we should be sitting next to them. That's how it works. And that's what it means here to be talking about this, to comfort those. Brotherly love. This is really interesting. There's two words. Uh, there's Philadelphios and Philadelphia. Two different Greek words. And Philadelphia is that brotherly love. It's kind of like, yeah, you're my man with me. I love you. Philadelphios is deeper. It's sibling love. It's family relational love. See, if you've got a brother and you love him, it's, you're, you're going to go home and leave them. You don't, you don't have to live with them all the time if he's in Christ. But if he's a brother in the flesh, you've got to put up with him. You've got to see him at Thanksgiving. You gotta smile. You have, there's more obligation behind that familiar, that family love versus that friendship love. You know, it's interesting throughout Scripture, God's referred to us as our father, and then again, that, that, that we are siblings in Christ. So let me ask you, give you a quick illustration here. Now I'm ahead of myself once again. John 13, 34 through 35 tells us this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know. Sounds like Peter was writing this, but it wasn't. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what's the hallmark, the number one hallmark that we will be identified in the world as believers? How well we get along with each other. Yeah, our love. Yep. Well, thank you. Good, good. Can I get another amen? <laughs> Think about that, how well we love. And this is what Peter's saying this morning. He's saying, this is what the body's supposed to be looking like. That's the big, in one sentence, he sums up the church. We wouldn't need anything else to display who we are in Christ to the world if we followed this one sentence. Rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 on how much you love others within the church and not based upon whether they like you or not. See, this, this love is an unconditional love. I did um, the Memorial Day prayer tent Friday night. I signed up for that before I chose to preach this morning, by the way. I would not have done that. A Friday night, um, 8 o'clock to midnight. And this is, I'm going to be barking more about this next year, trust me, you guys. This is a spectacular opportunity. I mean, a 10 out of a 10 to honor God through what we do to bless the community, to bless those who come here. Um, you know, we were praying like literally by name for the first responders, Nate, um, Zach, for, for Mark, for, for these people, for Rebecca, all the people, just in our community that are waiting. You guys are, they are waiting for the sirens to, to pull up there. What about lifting up the law enforcement and the businesses that they would be displaying the love and the kindness of our Father and praying for our city leaders and our government by name and praising God for the liberty that we have that a city has granted us favor to place a tent on public property so we could worship a holy God. You know, you look back at the history of humanity, there aren't, there aren't a lot of governments that say, yeah, take some 
some government property and put a tent up so you can pray for us. That, historically speaking, is not a common thing. And we have favor with the city of Myrtle Beach that they've allowed us to do this. And then we come together for 40 hours. It will be 60 next year, mark my words, um, to, to lift up the community. But here's the amazing thing. That seven, six different churches were represented, seven in the prior shift that we took over for, but six in the shift that I was on. And as soon as we started soaking in prayer and praise and worship, they brought music this time. I'm like, they're, they're doing this stuff right. And as we started praising and worshiping, I'm looking at the guys next to me, and I don't care what the label over the church is that, that, that you're affiliated with at all. This, this is the body of Christ. This is the oneness that Peter's talking about, that we drop the label from where we've come from so we can join together as the body to fulfill biblical responsibilities to our community, to our government, to our tourists, to our businesses, to our first responders, and simply rejoice that we get to. And you go, wow, and you leave after four hours of this, and I'm feeling like a million bucks at 60,000 feet climbing fast. That's how I left at midnight. And a joy to, I signed up Christian, he had no choice in the matter, but I know he'll sign me up next year in retaliation. He'll probably double, he'll back me up at the 3 a.m. shift probably and think it's funny. And he'd have the right and the blessing to do that, by the way. Because in Christ, we pull each other in the direction of Christ in the, at all times. So just a joy, but that is what they're talking about. This love for one another, this harmony with us. Tenderhearted, or, or, or to have a tender heart. The Greek here, this is great. Uh, is used phagnus. All right, and here's the definition. I looked it up. The Greek, the first definition is having strong bowels. I'm like, oh, I don't know where we're going with this now all of a sudden. The second was compassionate and tender-hearted. So I don't know whether the church being compassionate or tender-hearted or having strong bowels. I think they're probably both good. We're going to need some strong bowels. But I think that Peter was talking to us more about the compassion and tender-heartedness. At least hopefully I think that. So, so what would the church look like? You know, for a tender-hearted, and if you think about that, what they're saying, uh, being compassionate again. And that's simply saying, we want to know where you're coming from and meet you there. That's what it means. We want to we know where you're coming from or where you've been and meet you there. We're not, we're not saying you have to get here to be engaged by us. Simply, simply to love in, in, in a deeper manner with compassion. A humble mind. i got to go quickly because I'm going to run out of time this morning. The Greek word here for humble in spirit is uh, tapenophron. Yeah, but the Greeks, boy, they had lots of letters. They're like Germans. Germans just like string letters endlessly together. It means having a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. I love that. A sense of one's, uh, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Or modesty, humility, lowliness of mind. Peter will address this toward the end of the book in chapter 5, verse 6, where he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Have you heard this quote? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Excuse me. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Have you heard that? And it's, the quote's attributed to C.S. Lewis. It's not an accurate quote, by the way. So, so I'll read you what C.S. Lewis had to say here because it's amazing. Do not imagine if you meet a really humble man that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy, I like that, S-M-A-R-M-Y, smarmy. There's a new word for you. You go, this guy looks smarmy. He, he will not be a greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. 
Probably you will probably all you will think about him is that he seemed to have a cheerful it seemed to be an a cheerful intelligent chap who took a real interest what you said to him. That's interesting. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to be enjoying life so easily. Can I be really happy? Master humility or life will flow. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. This is brutal. The first step is that he must realize he is proud. Oh, oh, that's painful, isn't it? It means I think I'm much more important than you really think I am. And I probably need to tell you how important I am in order for you to understand this. Because then I'm exalting myself and that feels really great. The problem is, is that it has horrible consequences spiritually and relationally. And that's why Peter is pulling this attribute up now. I also heard humility defined once as a clear recognition of who and what we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we should be. Let me say that again. A clear recognition of who and what we really are. Who are we? We are fickle, selfish, fallen, broken men and women desperately in need of grace and mercy and in need of great help. That's who we are. What are we? As Christians, we've been redeemed through Jesus' incomprehensible torture and death, which serves as the payment for my sinful conduct, my treason against the kingdom of God, when judged before a holy and just God. Further, I've been adopted into his family and empowered through his Holy Spirit. That's what I am. And then followed by a sincere attempt to become what I should be, and that's what Peter's talking about. So all he's talking about is how do we become what what we are to be within the body of Christ. So that's it. That, that, that's, the, that's the how we act, the why we act. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then it gives us uh, Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love his life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. And that's, again, let him seek peace and pursue it. That's what Peter's talking about here. They're just giving an Old Testament quote to say, dummy, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And here's why. For the eyes of the, for the, eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears open to their prayer. We knew last week, again, that, that if there's discord and you're not living your wife, what happens to the prayers we offer up to God? And he's saying there are definitely things. One cannot commune with God with a bitter spirit. Think about that. It's like it shuts, it's spiritual neurotoxin. It shuts me down spiritually. So we're, we're called to pay re repay evil with kindness. Doesn't that sound crazy? But think about this, Romans 5, 8. What did Christ do for us? It says this, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it's amazing, truly amazing how much wisdom, practical boots on the ground wisdom is packed into Psalms and Proverbs. You want to be blessed? Bless those who curse you. I was waiting tables. When I became a Christian, I was waiting tables up at Rossi's years ago, a long time ago, 29 years ago. Right about this time, 29 years ago, and there was a guy, Frank, that I worked with. That's his actual name. I don't care if he hears this. He, sh he should rejoice in knowing what God has done with me, a dopey human being. And Frank did not like me at all. And I don't know why. I mean, there's, some, there's some life in the secular world. There are people who love you, and there are people who hate you. And Frank did not like me. And I mean, literally, I'd walk and say, hey, Frank, how are you doing? And he'd look at me, and he'd just turn his head away and walk away. It was like, he would not acknowledge me. 
And I mean, when you think about that, you think, you're, you're a horrible, rotten person. But who's the horrible, rotten person? Frank doesn't know any better. Frank's just doing, the way, doing this the way the world does. I should know better. And I had somebody walk me through this to repay good for evil. And I, so the guy said, how would you show Frank you love him? Not that, what do you think, what do you feel? Skip all that. How do you love Frank? No, I don't go to his house. I don't plant roses in his front yard. I'm not going to be doing, give him reputation about what a great guy Frank is. Oh, I cross his path for a couple hours every day at work. How would you tell that person you love him? How would you show them? I started doing his side work. So I'd come in, see his side work, show up 15 minutes early and do his side work. And he'd show up, look at the, the list where it says his side work. He'd go over to do the glasses and the cups. And it was like, this done. And I'd kill myself going behind his back. I remember on his birthday, I bought him, he loved wine. I bought him a bottle of wine. Maybe that was his problem. I bought him a bottle of wine. And, and he was leaving that summer. So I got saved in April. And he left at the end of August. And then the first week of August, I came in and caught him doing my side work. And that tells you the power of the gospel. It tells you the power of love. See, life, getting along with somebody who likes you is not the difficult thing in life. That's easy. And as we go through our day, we have these tied up, emotionally bad relationships. And God says, if you could clean them up, what would your life be like then? Oh, it'd be a breeze. It'd be beautiful. So go to work on those relationships. That's what Peter's saying. And if you go to work on those relationships and everybody who repays you with evil, you do good to them. How many people will hate you in the end? And truthfully, they may still hate you, but they'll be gritting their teeth doing it. All right? And a lot of times, and I've heard stories of this, where literally they give up trying to torture the Christian. You know, in the workplace. Because it ain't working. It's coming back on them. That if every time I tried to stab you in the back, that person did good to you, you'd start to feel bad. You'd cut it out. This is not bringing the return you would hope. And so I think about Frank, about how powerful that was. And I'll never forget the day. I, I walked into work within that same week. And I, and I used to always walk and say, good afternoon, Frank. And literally, he didn't acknowledge me until August. And I walked in that early August. And I, good afternoon, Frank. He said, hi, Jonathan, how are you? And I'm like, thank God I was wearing Depends because I had problems. You know, I'd done something in my pants. I was so shocked that Frank would know me. Yeah, it was amazing. But there was the joy of the gospel that shows when we change our conduct, the Holy Spirit does the rest. You want a good life? The other thing, don't talk trash. It's amazingly how much, even as Christians and believers, we, we, we talk trash. Whoever desires to love his life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. That means you're restraining it, by the way. I got a tongue that can trim a hedge. And so when you say things to me, I immediately have the script up here, and I go, ooh, that's, that's pretty brutal. That'd be pretty horrible, Jonathan, for you to say that. So I can keep my mouth shut. See, we're still, still broken. Our mind is still going to be a battle frontier, but we don't have to take it to the physical and let it slip out of our lips. You can think it. But it really true, the less, the more you work on this, it's easier not to think it. I would say we underestimate. If we as humans, and especially as Christians, underestimate anything other than the ability to deceive and lie to ourselves, it is the power of our words. The power of words. A stupid statement growing up, sticks and bones will break your bones, words will never hurt me. That's crazy. That's a lie. I mean, more wars have been started over words Oh my gosh, more bloodshed over words? Unbelievable. Yet here's Peter telling us, you want to have a profound impact? Let him keep his tongue from evil 
and his lips from speaking deceit. James 3 tells us this, and James tells us what we're up against. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? There's your illustration now. Little match and burns. burn the forest down. That's what a word can do. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. But no man can tame the tongue. There's the problem. It is an unruling evil full of deadly poison. Now, do you understand why Peter's saying keep your mouth shut? Proverbs 13, 3, I love this. He who guards his mouth guards his life. But he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 21, 23. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I was listening to um, a, a, a preacher talk about road rage, and he, and he cut somebody off. And he says, he looks over, and like this huge angry guy is barreling up alongside of him. He pulls the car over and rolls the window down, and the car pulls up next to the guy. He's ready to get out and beat the stuffing out of him. And, and the preacher responds, please forgive me for, for what I did was shockingly stupid, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he said, it, it was like the blood drained from the guy's face. I mean, he, there was about to be a mess on the side of this road. And he said, literally, the guy said, oh, Okay, and walks away. I mean, think about how a soft word turns away wrath. Boy, that you're in the middle of a heated argument. Put a soft word in there. Watch what happens. You diffuse the mess. And again, Peter's telling us, boy, those words, it's a big deal. I was, I was uh, reading a, or listening on radio about a road raiding incident with two cars, and they were going at each other. Both pulled out guns at the same time and shot and killed each other. <laughs> well, if you kept your mouth shut, might have made it home for dinner today. Truthfully, I mean, that's a reality for the world we live in. Yet Peter encourages us uh, not only to watch our words, but to turn away from evil and do good. He encourages us to seek peace and pursue it and to watch and closely monitor those words. And why? Here's why. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer again. And you know, keep a line open with God, watch your mouth. And keep a line open with God, husbands, love your wife. Real simple stuff. And it, and it scares me when I hear these things because I think that if this is the truth and we believe it, the 2 Timothy 3.16, all, all scriptures, God inspired. If we take it as the word of God, boy, the, what does that do? So I want to close this out. What makes a good team a great team? What makes a great team a championship team? And it's going to sound a little bit like heresy again. I think Randy will agree with me at the end of the day. But I would submit it has nothing to do with the players. You hear that? I'll say it again. It has nothing to do with the players. Now, yes, all right, it's at some level. Yeah, it does. You can't take little Pop Warner players out and put them on a pro team and think it's going to work. But it has much less to do with the players than most of us would think. It's not a great quarterback. It's not a defensive team. It's not a defensive line. It's not, it's not the players who make the team a great team. It's the coach. And if you think about us in Christianity, see, as Christians, Christianity isn't a great religion because Christians are great people. I hope that's not the case. We'd be blowing it in caps today. Christianity is not a great religion, but it's the religion, and it's a great religion because it offers the ability to have a real relationship with the, with the God of the maker of the heavens and earth, the God who is and was and shall be, who sent his son to die upon a cross, and the God who empowers his saints through the power of his Holy Spirit. Clemson's a great team, not because they have great players. They've got good players, no question. 
you looked at some of the players, when you, if you watch some of these athletic teams, they're really good players on some other teams, but they're not in the championship line. And I think players pick up on that. I know, play, not personally, but I've, I've read multiple times of players who say, I want to play for this coach, knowing that that coach has the ability to extract something from that player that he cannot pull out on his own. And so what is it that allows someone outside of us to extract from us that which we don't possess? Following the Clemson game, their victory in, in January 9th, 2017, the national championship victories, Dabo Sweeney made this statement. He said he told his players that love would win the game on Monday night. Talking about the love that his players and that his team shared. And it goes back to exactly what Peter's telling us. Is that the love of Christ manifests in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It changes everything. I can't live according to anything I just read to you this morning. I'm not. I can make it look good and superficial. But I can't truly live out what I've read today without the love of Christ dwelling within and through me. See, Peter's simply exhorting this church that's full of weak men with little resources facing tremendous oppos opposition to do the impossible. And you know what? Love does the impossible. It gives us the ability to where we are broken, selfish, prideful men and women. We're able now to look beyond the nose of our face. We're able to care deeply for one another. We're able to display to this world who and what we really are through the death and resurrection of the person of Christ. And so I hope, don't be discouraged this morning. Soak before the Lord on your knees. Praying on our knees is a lost practice in our church today. Bow before a king and let him pull from you, extract from you as he fills you that which you cannot do to display to a world the God we love and the God we serve. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.